Africa rise and shine Africa zota Africa amuka na unai It is 700 hours Central African time. Good morning. Welcome to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on the DSTV AWK802. I am Spumelele Zondi with Enmosa Tabisolihuku and Neto Chamane. Your top stories. UN needs $4 billion for famine relief in four countries. South African courts blocks government ICC withdrawal bid. New reports highlight human rights violations around the world. In economics, concerns over financial position of state-owned enterprises in South Africa. And in sport, Africa wants 10 places at a FIFA expanded World Cup. Here's Enmosa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Moussa. The South African government says it will study the High Court's judgment before deciding on a course of action. The court set aside the country's decision taken in October last year to withdraw from the International Criminal Court on the grounds that the move was invalid and unconstitutional. The application to set aside the decision was brought by the Democratic Alliance. The Department of Justice's spokesperson, Mtunzimaga, says they will reflect on the judgment. Look, as government, we, we will uh, meticulously respect on the reasons for the judgment um, because the matter has far-reaching implications. And as such, we will take a decision whether to appeal or not. The Democratic Republic of Congo says it's investigating facts brought to the public's attention after a video purportedly showing government troops killing civilians prompted outrage. The footage shows a group of uniformed men opening fire, then walking among at least 20 bodies, apparently in the central Kasai region. Past calls to probe the incident was rejected by the government, but a statement issued by Kinshasa signals a change of stance. Two other videos emerged on Monday, supposedly taken in the same region, also purportedly showing abuses by DRC forces. Somalia has been praised for its peaceful handover of power following the inauguration of President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed. The Special Representative of the UN Secretary General Michael Keating made the remarks during the ceremony. He also praised the vital role played by the African Union mission in Somalia and the Somali forces in protecting the political process and providing a secure environment throughout the elections. The UN, the African Union, the European Union, the African Regional Trade Bloc, IGAD and the League of Arab States pledged to support the new government. Keating elaborates. Their combined support illustrates our collective hope to see the people and government of Somalia united in building this country. This means taking on the hard challenges of strengthening the Somali National Security Forces to represent and protect the people of Somalia. It means resolving long-standing local conflicts and a comprehensive approach to dealing with violent extremism. It means advancing the constitutional review and the basis upon which resources and revenues will be mobilized, managed and shared. And it means extending basic governance and services to all cities and towns. 
Zimbabwe has deployed army medics to work at major public hospitals following a week-long strike by junior doctors. The doctors are demanding an increase in call allowances and a duty-free car facility. The permanent secretary in the Ministry of Health says the doctors' strike had put pressure on public hospitals, which were already struggling with shortages of drugs and underfunding from the government. And finally, the Electoral Commission in Kenya has started registering prisoners who are eligible to vote during this year's general elections due in August. Kenyan prisoners won the right to vote in a 2010 landmark ruling by the High Court. They have, however, not voted due to logistical issues concerning their registration and the eventual process. There are about 50,000 inmates in Kenya's 118 prisons. It's not yet clear how many are eligible to vote, and the opposition has raised concerns that the exercise, the exercise behind bars may lead to rigging. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Thank you very much. And it's 7.05 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumelele Zondi and I am with you until 900 hours Central African time this morning. Now conflicts and the frequency of droughts exacerbated by climate change are driving severe food shortages and famine conditions in parts of Africa and the Middle East. So says the United Nations Secretary General at an emergency press conference to announce that more than 20 million people in northeast Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia and Yemen are facing famine or a credible risk of famine in the next six months. The United Nations and its humanitarian agencies are appealing for $4.4 billion by the end of March, while some $5.6 billion is required for just these four countries in 2017. Sharon Bryce reports from New York. There's a sense of deja vu when images of starving children in Africa flash across television screens. Countries torn apart by conflict, compounded by severe climate conditions, leaving millions on the verge of death. I asked the UN chief, Antonio Guterres, how we got here again. These things are repeating themselves. And I believe there are two very important factors that explain why they are repeating themselves. One is conflict. And conflict is, of course, uh, having devastating humanitarian consequences. The second is uh, a number of uh, situations of drought uh, are being accelerated by climate change. We always had drought. We always had desertification. But climate change works as a key enhancer of other factors. Uh, Desertification, uh, uh, food insecurity, water scarcity. Uh, And so, uh, uh, not only we have the repetition of crisis, but we risk to have more and more and with more devastating consequences. The UN believes the dire conditions in all four countries are man-made. Two counties in South Sudan are already suffering famine conditions, a situational threshold where at least 20% of households face extreme food shortages, acute malnutrition rates exceed 30%, and where the death rate exceeds two persons per 100,000, among other factors. These famines can be averted if we act now. The UN's humanitarian chief and emergency relief coordinator Stephen O'Brien still believes the worst could be averted. The lesson from the 2011 Somalia famine 
was by the time that we declared famine uh, broadly as a world, half those who died had already died. So this is why we're sounding the alarm now, so that we can actually make the difference to avert the catastrophe. And it uh, builds on the enormous advocacy for all four countries, which is why we already have in place uh, many of the aid workers and agencies and implementing partners both at international and national level and working with and through governments uh, where they have that capacity. Millions, according to the Secretary-General, now surviving in a space between malnutrition and death, between vulnerable diseases and outbreaks, forced to kill their animals to survive, with at least 1.4 million children caught in the middle. Plans are in place. The, the Executive Director of the World Food Programme, Ethron Cousin. This is a very different situation than even in Somalia than we were in in 2011. In Somalia today, as compared to 2011, you have a functioning government. The markets are functioning. What we need are the resources to ensure that we can give access to the food that is available to those who have suffered from two years of drought and also as the meteorologists are telling us that, that the, the next rains will also fail. And so <clears throat> acting now before we reach the height of the lean season in each one of these countries will ensure our ability to provide the, the support that is necessary. Meanwhile, a new report from the Food and Agriculture Organization Wednesday warns that mankind's ability to feed itself is in jeopardy due to intensifying pressures on natural resources, mounting inequality and climate change. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. London-based Amnesty International has issued a 408-page report highlighting human rights violations around the world, including the African continent. James Shimanyula attended the release of the report in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, and sent us this report from there. In its report released Wednesday in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, Amnesty International describes 2016 as the year of unrelenting misery and fear as governments and armed groups abused human rights in many ways. Large numbers of people, Amnesty International says in the 408-page report, continued to flee conflict and repression in many regions of the world. Among other pervasive issues, Amnesty International documents continued torture and other ill treatment, as well as the failure to uphold sexual and reproductive rights, government surveillance, and the culture of impunity for past crimes. Among the 159 countries highlighted in the report by Amnesty International, three African countries, Ethiopia, Sudan, and the Democratic Republic of Congo feature prominently. Fiseha Tekle is Amnesty International's researcher for Ethiopia. Fiseha chronicles atrocities committed in Ethiopia by the government and the number of people killed last year during protests. 
In general, according to the number we have, more than 800 people have died in the last one year. And this number includes both those killed in Amora region and Oromia region. But the protest is not limited now to Oromia only, so the Amara people have joined the protest. Oromo has they have been targeted because they are asking for more economic justice and regional autonomy. Tens of thousands of people have been arrested in Oromia since the beginning, but there is no official number. But since the declaration of the state of emergency in October 2016, more than 20,000 people have been arrested. So it's according to the government statistics. As far as the persecution continues, as far as the unrest will continue, even if this thing will continue, as far as the grievance of the people are there. So Amnesty is doing uh, as usual, like it does for every country. It's documenting the human rights violations. It is reminding the government of Ethiopia about its obligation towards its own people and also trying to attract attention to the situation in Ethiopia. Ahmed Zuberi, Amnesty International researcher for Sudan, focuses mainly on the current situation in Ijabel Mara, one of the trouble-ridden spots in Sudan's southwestern region of Darfur. There is some kind of uh, massive uh, uh, human rights violations happening in, in, in Jabal Mara area. Unlawful killing of civilians, destruction of villages, mass uh, internally displaced persons. And also we received information that there is, uh, the government of Sudan used uh, chemical weapons. And also we received some photos and we received testimonies from the victims. And we received testimonies from a medical profession working in Jabal Mara area. Interviewed around 200 people, and they told us there's almost 130 or over people died due to this uh, chemical weapon. At the moment, the situation is a bit calm. You know, the, the government of Sudan announced uh, just recently cessation of hostilities in Darfur and South Kordofan and Pluma. The situation is quite calm. So the cessation of hostility is still holding. I think there is some skirmishes happening from now, uh, for, from time to time. The last one happened just yesterday between the, uh, the armed group and the Sudan armed forces. But in the rest of the country, as you can see from our report, uh, there is also human rights violations uh, targeting political activists, human rights defenders in different parts of the country, arresting them, torturing them. Also media and journalists like you also have a ha very hard time to to speak up in Sudan. There is a very good initiative presented by the Tabo Mbeki, former president of South Africa. They call it the Roadmap in Sudan. And, and the government signed that roadmap in March last year. And the, the armed group and Sudan as opposition political groups also signed that roadmap. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Amnesty International researcher, Evie Frank, briefly touches on human rights violations in the Central African nation. We've monitored an uh, increasing amount of violations of uh, rights to freedom of expression, association and assembly, which goes uh, along with the uh, postponing of the elections, the presidential elections, um, and the tense political climate. We're also very worried about the lack of protection for civilians, the ongoing conflict uh, in the east of the country, but also in other provinces. So we've done different types of research over the course of the year. We published a report in September which focused very much on the electoral context so there we were very much focusing on the lack of um, citizens to express themselves on these very sensitive questions related to the end uh, of the second mandate of President Kabila 
Um, so in the course of that research, we, we talked to a large amount of stakeholders. We worked a lot with uh, movements, with civil society organizations, human rights defenders, and we also looked at the rights of opposition parties uh, and members of the opposition. The political climate remains very tense and a number of human rights violations. Everyone wants to see stability in the DRC as soon as possible. What is essential to achieve that stability is for the government and the authorities to respect human rights and to make sure that everyone is allowed to express themselves in a peaceful way. The climate is becoming more and more difficult um, for international uh, researchers to, to do their job, but also we're very worried about uh, national human rights defenders, about youth activists, and especially about journalists in the way they are prevented from doing their job. So there's large numbers of uh, activists, human rights defenders and journalists who have been detained. When we're looking only at uh, youth activists, we're talking about uh, over 70 to 100 only in the course of 2016. We have been uh, campaigning uh, for the release of several prisoners of conscience. Um, a number of them have been released successfully uh, in August uh, 2016. However, there's uh, an amount of them who still remain in prison and also the repression continues. That was Evie Frank, Amnesty International researcher for the Democratic Republic of Congo. Amnesty International report that was released Wednesday in Nairobi bears witness to the determination of those who stand up to demand respect for human rights across the world and proclaim their solidarity with those whose rights were flouted. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Your time is 7.17 right here. That is 7.17 right here on Africa Rise and Shine. On Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The South African government says it will study the Pretoria High Court's judgment before deciding on a course of action. The court yesterday set aside Pretoria's decision taken in October last year to withdraw from the International Criminal Court on the grounds that the move was invalid and unconstitutional. The application to set aside the decision was brought by the country's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance. The party argued that Justice Minister Mike Masuta unlawfully bypassed Parliament when he made the decision and therefore did not act in line with the Constitution. Amos Pajo reports. The notice of withdrawal from the Rome Statue of the International Criminal Court signed by the first respondent, the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, without prior parliamentary approval, is unconstitutional and invalid. Two, the cabinet decision to deliver the notice of withdrawal to the United Nations Secretary General without prior parliamentary approval is unconstitutional and invalid. Three, the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services, and the President of the Republic of South Africa are ordered to forthwith revoke the notice of withdrawal. This decision of the full bench announced by Judge Phineas Mujapilu marks yet another milestone in clarifying the separation of powers between Parliament and the Executive. In explaining the reasons for the decision, Judge Mujapilu said while the process of signing international treaties and withdrawing from them is the responsibility of the executive arm of government, this must comply with the principle of legality and is subject to constitutional control. Mujapilu says Parliament still has the responsibility to deal with the country's laws. We consider the submissions made through the prism of constitutional guidelines. Broadly, we do not agree 
with the general tenor and interpretation placed on Section 231 by the government respondents. A notice of withdrawal on a proper construction of Section 231 is the equivalent of ratification, which requires prior parliamentary approval in terms of Section 2312. As correctly argued on behalf of the DA, the act of signing a treaty and the act of delivering a notice of withdrawal are different in effect. The former has no direct legal consequences, while, by contrast, the delivery of a notice of withdrawal has concrete legal effects in international law, as it terminates treaty obligations, albeit on a deferred basis in the present case. The Department of Justice spokesperson Tunzi Maga says they will reflect on the judgment. Look, as government, we, we will uh, meticulously reflect on the reasons for the judgment um, because the matter has far-reaching implications, and as such, we will take a decision whether to appeal or not. The Democratic Alliance has welcomed the court's decision, saying it hopes government will kick-start the parliamentary process on the matter instead of appealing. However, the party's federal chairperson, James Self, says they are ready to continue with their battle should government seek leave to appeal. If the government uh, appeals it, we will, uh, we will oppose the appeal. Uh, but we really hope, again, that um, the government does not waste further taxpayers' money in engaging in in litigation after litigation. Uh, Generally speaking, we have been reasonably successful in our litigation program, and uh, the only losers have been the government, but the real losers have been the taxpayers of South Africa. Law expert Shadra Guto has also warned of possible retaliation from civil society, including protests and more litigation, should government push through with the notice of withdrawal. Guto adds that appealing the High Court's decision has little prospects of success and that this will instead cost the ANC more electoral support in the 2019 general elections. South Africa is not the ANC. That's the first point. And therefore, even within the ANC, I'm very sure it will be split in the middle in terms of membership and loyalty. Because people will say, if crime such as apartheid is in the International Criminal Court, one of the crimes, and we came from there, and now we have the ruling party or the majority party at this point really trying to move out, the ANC will suffer seriously in uh, 2019 when the elections come. An option for government will be to take the withdrawal notice through parliament and with the governing ANC enjoying a majority in the National Assembly, prospects of succeeding in pulling out of the ICC are good, although the process will take longer. I'm Amos Power in Pretoria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Mujemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
It is 7.23 Central African time right here on Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's go to Swaziland, where the People's United Democratic Movement, or Podemo, has rejected media reports that the party intends to participate in the planned Tinkundla 2018 national elections to be held next year. The party, which has previously engaged in anti-election campaigns, has issued a statement denouncing media reports, claiming it has changed its stance. The party is calling for a democratic alternative system, saying the current system doesn't serve the interests of Swazi people, but only the royal house. Eric Lubisi has more. Swaziland is situated in the eastern part of Mbombela in Pumalanga, bordering the country in Mozambique, and has a population of 1.2 million. It is classified as a lower middle income monarchy, with the economic growth slowing since 2013. Last year, it was projected at 1.3%, down from 1.7%, in 2015. According to Podemo, the Tinkundla system is worsening the situation in a country where 63% of the population lives below the poverty line and about 29% lives below the extreme poverty line. Podemo believes that doing away with the current Tinkundla system will bring relief to the country. With the election expected to be held next year, the party plans to continue with campaigns to discourage the Swazi people from participating in the election. Party Secretary General Mlongis Makanya. Kudemo has a long-standing relationship not to partake in these elections for a very simple reason, that these elections are meaningless, these elections are nothing but a royal sham, these elections do not empower in any way the citizens of Swaziland to be able to, through their elected representatives in the form of members of parliament, to have a meaningful control in the affairs of the state. Through the Tingunda system, the King Swati III has powers to elect the majority of members of parliament in the two houses, the Senate and the National Assembly. Makanya feels the interests of the nation get compromised as political parties are banned. If you look at Chapter 17 of the Swaziland Constitution, that speaks around the issues of parliament. It has made sure that the special entrenchment of certain critical sections in the constitution that would otherwise have practical effects for any parliament to ensure that it rectifies any policy for. It also improves and reviews powers of the executive. Meanwhile, the Swazi government says it's not surprised by the party statement as it is not something new. The government says it has done nothing wrong but adhere to the constitution of the country. Spokesperson of the government, Pesis Melane, says it is only the people of Swaziland who have the power to change the constitution, not the government. Anyone who feels that the constitution should now change should talk to the people. In most cases, people ask government to change the constitution. Government has no power over the constitution of the people. It is the people themselves that have power over the constitution. If you want the constitution to be amended, you talk to the people because it is we, the people, who put the constitution together. According to the Swaziland government, it is not worried by Podemos threats of mobilizing the nation against participating in the election. I'm Eric Lubisi in Bombela, Mpumalang. Political parties have praised South Africa's finance minister, Pravin Godan, for what they say was a good balancing act given the economic challenges. The ruling ANC says the budget is a reflection of its new direction of radical economic transformation. Opposition parties said no one could have done better under the circumstances, Joseph Musia reports. 
Given that the minister had very little to work with because of a sluggish economic growth, political parties say he has done a good job. Some even pointed to the enormous political pressure he's under with reports that he may soon be replaced. Ngabayom Zikwanko of the UDM says it seems the minister managed to avoid the talk of radical transformation as articulated by the president in the State of the Nation address. We think as a party that he was put in a very difficult position by his president when he announced a, a radical economic transformation agenda, when the minister himself does not have the fiscal room to maneuver. Remember, any program that is radical requires resources, and it's resources that you don't have as a country. Uh, he tried his best, but I think the best is not good enough insofar as that is concerned. It, it ended up being just statements of hope. David Mania of the DA is also of the opinion that Gordon had avoided the path of radical economic transformation. On the one hand, you have the Minister of National Treasury talking about inclusive economic growth. And on the other hand, you have the presidency uh, talking about radical economic transformation. And the question today was how the minister would integrate what appears to be those two competing uh, priorities. Uh, If you dig deep dive and dig into the speech, it doesn't appear to me uh, that he did so. Uh, He does make a mention Uh, as you correctly say, of a new perspective on economic growth. But it didn't seem to me that there was anything in the budget specifically that gave effect to uh, that uh, program. But the ANC's Deputy Secretary-General, Jesse Duarte, says the speech takes forward the party's radical economic transformation agenda. The minister has obviously tried to balance between what revenues we can expect and, and what really must be done. And, and we're very impressed with the fact that he's taken a very practical view, especially looking at our perspective of radically transforming the structure of our economy and making available funding for the SMMEs, especially the 30% government spend to go to small and medium business enterprises is vitally important. IFP leader Mangosutu Butelezi and Steve Swart of the ACDP say the minister did a good job. I don't think anyone could have done better. In the circumstances, you know, which are global and, and ours, which are, are, are very bad too, I, I don't think that anyone could have maneuvered in, in the manner in which he has done. It's, it's really an admirable balancing act as far as, far as I'm concerned. I don't think there's much one can criticize. The minister had very little room to move, and we believe that he stuck to a large degree with a very good fiscal consolidated path that he had announced beforehand. He also then significantly increased personal tax to 45% for those that are earning 1.5 million rand or more a year. Now that's a significant jump, and I would think those people would then say we want value for every money, that every cent we spend on tax. And we from the ACDP side say rather look at the corrupt expenditure that is 30 billion rand a year and address that. Other members say there are things they wish the minister had emphasized on to grow the economy and better the lives of ordinary people. Maxwell Nchaisa of the AIC and Ntantla Kubisa of the National Freedom Party. We would like that more money should be taken to local government because it is where most of the people are, are staying. And again, he did talk about the public procurement, which is very important. I like now when he said now about 30% of the, those that would be given tenders now should be given to those the subcontractors, those that are still struggling. So that is very good on the part of the minister. 
and there are these increases now that we were expecting. So he has done good for that. We believe that we have to have more people uh, who pay tax by way of creating jobs, creating employment, ensuring that informal traders are upgraded, SMEs are upgraded, and of course the urban rural development is also attended to. We believe that as National Freedom Party, there was more that was supposed to be given to the infrastructure, uh, electricity roads, uh, housing, and also uh, water, because there's a lot of drought in our land. Uh, we don't believe that 12,5 billion is enough for water in particular. Joseph Musia compiled that report for us. It's time for your new ha- news headlines with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you in the headlines. The Democratic Republic of Congo is to investigate what it calls facts brought to the public's attention after a video purportedly showing government troops killing civilians prompted outrage. The Electoral Commission in Kenya started registering prisoners who are eligible to vote during this year's general elections due in August. And the countdown begins to intra-Syrian negotiations in Geneva, where UN Special Envoy Stefan Dumastura stressed the need to outpace those who wish to see the deliberations come to nothing. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you very much. And it is 7.33 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I am Spomelele Zondi. The Kenyan government has partnered with insurers to make a record insurance payout for livestock herders facing historic droughts. Andrew Mude, a senior economist at the International Livestock Research Institute, says the Kenya Livestock Insurance Program is based on the internationally recognized index-based livestock insurance model, which was developed several years ago by a team of agricultural economists from the Institute. So this partnership is something that has begun since around 2012 when the national government showed a lot of interest that actually developed an index-based livestock insurance program. Actually, it was aimed from abroad to develop a national agricultural insurance program. And there was a task force that sat and came up with some recommendations that were quite specific for crop and for livestock. And also in the current government, the Jubilee government manifesto, when they came into power, particularly for the counties in the north, which are dominated by nomadic herders whose livelihood is largely based on livestock. The promise they made to the people was that they would deliver livestock insurance. And so they worked jointly with me and my team from the International Livestock Research Institute, who actually since 2010 had already began piloting the delivery of index-based livestock insurance in one of the counties. So in companies, at that time, the companies involved were Equity Insurance Agency and UAP Insurance Company, which first launched the product in January 2010. And since then, we have been working right now that is underwriting the government clip product, APA, came on board in 2013. Also in 2013, the insurer, Takaful Insurance of Africa, came on board and launched in Wajir, which is largely a Muslim-dominated area, launched an Islamic-compliant, a Sharia-compliant, they call it, version of the product called Index-Based Livestock Takaful. So the government already had the benefit of the experience generated by the partnership between 
my group and uh, collaborators and the insurance companies, they had already started establishing themselves and scaling beyond the initial areas of pilot in Marsabit and Majir. So the government put together this Kenya Livestock Insurance Program, which basically uses the same contract, which is, you know, insuring livestock against forage scarcity. So it's a contract that will trigger before livestock perish in order to ensure payments that are made by the stores are used to buy veterinary drugs, to buy food, forage, and to buy water. Now, Andrew, how are the payments going to be effectuated? Well, so the payments, so in these areas, the six counties, uh, all of the households targeted by the CLIF program, they are households that either have bank accounts and households in the four communities, Marsabit, Wajir, Purkana, and Mandera, all of these households have bank accounts by virtue of an, another program operating in the area, the Hunger Safety Net Program. So for those households in those areas, the money will be bank accounts. And for the other areas, Nisiolo and Tana River, these households are all insured to have either a bank account or they would use the Safaricom M-Pesa account. So are they going to depend on the number of livestock that each family or household is having? That's a good question. Actually, what that depends on is the way the government contract is structured. The government contract targets selected individuals, and they're covered for at least for five cattle equivalents. So it protects five cattle equivalents, and the target is directed to those households that are vulnerable but non-poor. So those who are supposed to have at least a viable herd size. Now, for those who purchase the program, so there are others who are purchasing both through APA insurance as well as Takaful insurance companies, these herders get compensated as a function of the herd, the size of the herd that they insured. So there is a bit of a variation. So how far has the farmers or the cattle headers bought into this insurance arrangement? Yeah, so that's a good question in the sense that over time, since the launch in 2010, when 2,000 pastoralists first purchased into the program, over time and as insurance companies have scaled into other areas, more and more farmers, pastoralists, were purchasing the product. And up to now, I would say about 15,000 households have been involved in directly purchasing. The government, when it first launched in 2014, it insured 5,000 households. Currently, 14,000 households are insured by the government. They have plans to continue increasing that over the next three or four years to about 75,000. But one of the reasons that we are so, or we believe that this payout is such a milestone is that it really demonstrates the value of this product. So it's a time when there's widespread drought across Kenya. The national conversation, the political conversation, and conversation around development partners is how do we respond to this situation. And so there are efforts and discussions at the moment to identify funds to respond in different ways, whether it's food aid or cash aid or water tracking and so on. And already the insurance product has triggered, and quite soon, if not already, pastoralists will receive those funds. So it's important that the herders themselves, their representatives, so in county governments, Policymakers in national government, in the treasury, they recognize the potential of insurance to really act as a uh, proactive, responsible way to respond on time to drought risk and to ensure that households receive some relief or receive 
some resource to be able to purchase relief or to reduce the impact of that drought in advance, right? So the message that we want to put out there is that this, first of all, it's a product that is triggering at the right time in all these, in 60 of the 72, what we call insurance units, contracts were triggered, right? And our anecdotal experience on the ground is that there's agreements that the trigger really indicated the state of drought severity. So some areas received more payments than other areas, but the contracts triggered payments are going in on time and really want to use this as a demonstration of the value of the product. That is Andrew Mude, who is a senior economist at the International Livestock Research Institute, talking to Channel Africa's Wandi Lekhalipa. Lawyers representing environmentalist group Earthlife Africa are challenging in court a controversial nuclear energy deal in South Africa. They say the 2016 procurement document signed by the Minister of Energy, Tina Jomat peterson contradicts the one published in 2013. Lynn Aronser tells us more. The 2013 procurement document stated that the Department of Energy will do the procurement, but this was changed in the 2016 version. That says that ESCOM Holdings will be the new procurer. Advocate David Unterhalter says the 2016 determination published in the Government Gazette clearly states that ESCOM Holdings will now be the procurer, but makes no mention of who the purchaser is. Unterhalter called on the Department of Energy to reveal who the purchaser of the nuclear energy will be. He argued that the process followed by the Minister was unlawful and lacked public participation. Earlier in the day, various groups, including the environmentalist group, the Southern African Faith Communities Environment Institute, March to the Cape Town High Court. Program leader Liz McDyde. As part of that challenge, we have been approaching Parliament to ask them to hold the executive accountable. And so we're starting here, where we've had little success in Parliament, but we're starting here symbolically to say that Parliament has failed the people of South Africa, and we are now marching to the courts to seek justice. The matter resumes this morning and has been set down for three days to allow time for all the parties in the matter to present their cases. I am Nan Aronsa in Cape Town. 7.41 Central African Time. The fourth edition of Air Cargo Africa Trade and Expo is underway in South Africa's Eguruleni region. The three-day conference is expected to discuss challenges and find solutions facing the continent's air cargo industry. This is the first time since the inauguration of the conference that shippers and forwarders are participating in. Africa's freight market is less than 3% of the global market. The continent needs to catch up with the rest of the world as it faces a growing consumer market, Amina Akram reports. Air cargo remains a challenging industry in Africa. Experts say the sector remains weakened by red tape and lack of proper policies. Yet the continent's growing population is becoming more demanding and many consumers are now using air cargo for the delivery of their goods across borders. Musa Zwane is acting CEO at South African Airways. In recent times, The profitability of the sector has been affected by a downward pressure on yields. This must be reversed or arrested somehow, otherwise the case for further investment becomes harder. We have to re-engineer our processes to make it easier for customers to contract with us and for us to deliver more effectively. It is important 
therefore that the industry commits more vigorously to the e-fight initiatives. Jan Devet is Chief Operating Officer at Kenya Airways. But there's still a lot of things in Africa where, well, we should be concerned. I mean, take a simple thing as a runway. There are runways everywhere. But the amount of tires you wear out in Africa is about five times higher than anywhere else in the world, just as an example. It's a simple thing, but still it's increasing our money. At the same time, overflight rights, lending rights are an easy way for governments to get money in, in Africa. While on the other hand side, they should be thinking about their economic development, their economic base. If you don't invest in the airline business, you don't really get your economies connected to the rest of the world, especially with the large landlocked areas in Africa. Reina Muller is vice president of commercial at Saudi Cargo. He says Africa should improve its ground transport infrastructure to better facilitate air cargo. The, the situation at the, at the airports when it comes to uh, handling the, the, the import shipments, when it comes to handling the, the export shipments, there's, uh, there's an infrastructure in place that is okay. Of course, always uh, we, we can do better. One of the biggest challenges that I see is, uh, is on the ground when it comes to ground transport, meaning in uh, several areas of the, of the world, uh, we as the industry are, uh, are successful because we can combine our air cargo traffic with the ground transport road failure services. This is something that, from my point of view, is lacking. It cannot be that difficult uh, that to, to set it up. There, is, uh, there are several areas where, you could, where we could uh, set up trucking services uh, within, even within uh, one country. Rudolf Steiner is Senior Vice President at Swissport International. But putting some of the onus uh, back on airport operators uh, who have, for the most part, and there are exceptions, but for the most part, uh, operating without an integrated approach to development of cargo facilities at their, uh, at their airports. It, it's, it's treated as either an ancillary activity uh, without particular leadership by the airport operator or a, a simple opportunity for land revenue or without giving a thought to sort of a, a cohesive development of cargo policy. You could make it attractive to private developers to come into an airport, um, develop multi-tenant cargo facilities and realize a return on that as a, as a property development project with the right financial incentives. Air Cargo Africa is the continent's most important trade show for everyone involved in air cargo business. In 2015, the Trade Expo attracted a record of 80 international exhibiting companies and over 500 global industry players from 32 countries. That is Amina Akram reporting in South Africa's Eguruleni region. It's time for your economic news. Here's Tabasili Hoko. Thanks, Supermelele. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says that there are certain institutions in the country that should not be tempered with, including the Treasury. 
he maintains that such institutions are the bedrock of the economy. He also says he has no information on whether he is going to be fired as finance minister. He was addressing the media and parliament on Wednesday. South African economists have commended the finance minister's effort to contain headcounts in the public sector. The number of civil servants has stabilized around 1.3 million. However, compensation of employees continues to take a lion's share of total government expenditure at 35%. Director General at South Africa's National Treasury, Lungisa Fuzile, says government is exploring ways of reducing its wage bill. We have started a process with DPSA uh, to look at the, the, what exists uh, in terms of uh, the, the law and regulations and determine whether we can just use that alone and achieve the objectives that we want in relation to curtailing uh, wage bill. Or we might need uh, something uh, enhanced one way or another. We, we have got a legal framework that exists now which allows voluntary surveillance packages. The highly anticipated pickup of commodity prices might encourage investors to resuscitate Swaziland's mining sector. The country's National Provident Fund General Manager, Langala Kedlamini, says the anticipated increase of commodity prices could have a positive impact not only for the country but for the whole continent. He says African economies depend on resources, so any positive development in commodity prices will have a negative impact on the mining sector. The Zambian government says that the implementation of regional integration capacity building will accelerate the country's participation in regional economic communities for enhanced regional economic integration. Project coordinator at the Ministry of Commerce, Trade and Industry, Simon Ngona, says that the implementation of the activities under this project included enhancing national non-tariff barriers monitoring mechanism. Ngwana says the outcomes also include contributing towards enhancing trade facilitation and support services. Ghana statistics from the National Communications Authority on mobile cellular activity between Ghana and the rest of the world indicate that both international incoming and outgoing mobile-to-mobile voice calls are on the decline. The statistics are contained in the 2016 third quarter bulletin of the NCA indicates that inbound international traffic decreased by 7.5 million minutes from 155.8 million minutes in the third quarter of 2015 to 148.3 million minutes in the third quarter of 2016. Meanwhile, outbound international traffic for the same period also decreased marginally by 0.4% from 178.95 million to 178.23 million minutes. The U.S. dollar trades at 39 in South Africa, 1034 in Botswana, 970 in Zambia, 80 to the British pound, 94 to the euro, gold 1237 dollars, platinum 998 dollars an ounce, a brand crude 55 dollars, 86 cents a barrel. Africa continues to rise and shine.
Thank you very much, Sabiso. Neto Chemane is in studio. Now he has your sports news. Thank you, Spelele. A very good morning to you all, sport fans. Starting off with football news. Africa will be looking to double the number of places it has at an expanded World Cup. The continent's Football Association presidents have told soccer's world governing body FIFA. Africa wants at least 10 spots in the 48-team World Cup that FIFA president Gianni Infantino has proposed from 2026 as the continent gave a ringing endorsement to the expansion plans. All associations beg the idea to expand the World Cup and there is hope that Africa can have 10 places in future. South Africa football... Football Association Chief Danny Jordan said it on Wednesday. That would be the double of the five places the continent has at the next two finals in Russia next year and Qatar in 2022. Europe is seeking a minimum of 16 places up from 13 and wants its sides to be separated in the 16 opening round groups of three teams with the top two advancing to a 32-team knockout phase under plans approved by FIFA last month. South African Premiership side Supersport United thrashed Maritzburg United 4-1 in the APSA Premiership match at the Lucas Moripe Stadium in Atrashville last night. Maritzburg opened the scoring in the 15th minute courtesy of Kurt Lenkis and led going into half-time. The home team scored four goals in the second half with a brace from a man-of-the-match performance by Mandla Masango. Kingston and Carter scored the third with a bicycle kick and Jeremy Brokey completed the misery of the visitors in the 64th minute. Supersport United coach Stuart Baxter was not happy with the first half but delighted with the second half. The first 20 minutes were, were poor. We were, we were sloppy, we didn't pass the ball well enough. We gave them a goal. Well, we, didn't, we gave them the opportunity, he took it very, very well, but, but it was a miserable mistake. And then you, after 20 minutes, I just thought we had one very good attack when Mandler took, took, a, couple of t- took, it, took up a couple of touches and fed someone through, and, we, and I thought, right, now, let's start playing. And we evened the game out and got a little bit on top then. So when we came in at half-time, we'd already started to to put things right but I had to tell them at half time that it was not acceptable the first 20 minutes and and then if we play our game we'll hurt them and and, and I could see that and the second half was a fantastic response I thought the play, I thought they played fantastically well I thought the some of the attacking play I mean Rocky's goal when Yeah bends the ball down the line and Minyamani takes him on cuts it back and there's a dummy in the near post and he that's, that's straight off the training ground. That's, that was excellent. No, so I just, thought, I just thought it was a very, very good second half. Supersport are the league highest scorers with 30 goals after last night's match. They scored five goals against the Golden Arrows in the second half and five against Orlando Pirates also in the second half. Baxter, who also praised midfielder Renéluel Solognani, says they turn on the gas in the second stanza. Yeah, first half was rushing everything, but then he once he sl- once he slowed himself down, and he plays with that sort of let, let's call it a, a, a likable arrogance, you know, not an ego, but a likable arrogance, you know. And at this stage of his career, I think yeah, he is he's just feeling so good about being on a football field that I think he's like a little kid, you know, he's like a little kid. He's running around enjoying himself. But I just thought, I just thought, if you put in the first twenty minutes as as sort of nondescript as we did then uh, you've got to start doing something we started to get it back in the first half to be fair the second half of the first half 
we'd started to get our passing game going. We were securing the ball better so we could move. And, and a blue player was playing, playing to a blue shirt. You know, we started playing better. We weren't playing great, but we were, we were playing better. So I really had to build on that at half-time. And yeah, second half, great. And finally, in cricket news, Cricket South Africa's hashtag T20 Global Destination League, GDL, is taking shape as it approaches the last week to receive expressions of interest from bidders wishing to own a team. While there is notable excitement around the world and plenty of mystery surrounding who will be the first eight-team owners, the Protea players currently touring New Zealand are also starting to feel the buzz of a new dawn in South African cricket later this year. South Africa's Premier Limited overs opening back Batsman Hashim Amla will be among the star attractions in the inaugural hashtag T20 Global Destination League and is excited to be part of history by being among the first to play in this league. Thank you for tuning in to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. More sports news in the next hour. Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amuka na unai 7.56 Central African Time right here on Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's recap about top stories. The United Nations needs $4 billion for famine relief in four countries. South African COT blocks a government ICC withdrawal bid. New reports highlight human rights violations around the world. In economics, concerns over financial position of state-owned enterprises in South Africa. And in sport, Africa wants 10 places at FIFA Expanded World Cup. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for this hour. For myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Pumotora Magazda, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Taking us to the next hour of Africa Rise and Shine is Mroza with a song titled Sobula Lufandam.